Thank you for downloading Peter Smythe's podcast. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about Peter and this work at smythe.tv. All right. Does everybody have their Bibles today? For those who do, go ahead and turn to John 11. And while you're turning to John 11, I'm going to open up the session with prayer. Father, it says in your word, Paul wrote that you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you and your son. And we pray for that today in this session. I pray, Father, that you give a spirit of wisdom and revelation to everyone who is in the sound of my voice. That you take the words that I am preaching out of your word and you give them revelation to the spirits who are hearing it. And we thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, is everybody at John 11? The thing is, we're not going to start at John 11, but I wanted you to turn there because that's going to be our main text. Today we're preaching about the glory of the Lord. Now to open up, let me put something in your remembrance In Hebrews, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by the Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. Now, what you've got in your hands, your Bibles, that's a revelation of the mystery of Christ. But what the writer of Hebrews said is that God has spoken to us by his Son. And that's something we're going to explore today. What has God spoken to us through the Son, through Jesus Christ? Now, we're going to hit John 11, but we're going to start back with Moses in the Old Testament. Because I need to give you some background information to kind of set this up so you can see John 11 in its real context. Now, going back to the Old Testament, I want you to think of Moses and the stature that Moses had with God and with the congregation of Israel. Now, let me go over some highlights of Moses. Remember that he was on the backside of the desert when God appeared to him in a burning bush. And God called him to deliver the people of Israel. Well, when he met Pharaoh, he challenged Pharaoh with various plagues by the Lord. Remember that. Remember the ten plagues. The flies, the, the, the frogs, the, the uh, water that was made blood, the death of the firstborn. All of those many miracles to deliver the people of Israel. And it was all done through the hand of Moses. And then we see that the deliverance of the people of Israel through the Red Sea. Remember when God spoke to Moses because Pharaoh's army was enclosing on the children of Israel, and then you had the Red Sea in front of him, and God says to Moses, lift up your staff and divide the waters. In fact, let me read the... uh, the scripture to you, Exodus fourteen sixteen, But you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the Israel, Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. And then once the children of Israel went through the dry ground of the Red Sea, Moses turned around and lifted up his hand again, And the sea collapsed on Pharaoh and his armies. Now, that's quite a hand that you have with God in doing those types of things. But you know, it didn't stop there. You had the miracle of manna in the desert. Now, listen to the account here because it includes the glory cloud, and I want you to hear it with your own ears. Here, the Israelites are in the in the wilderness, and they're complaining to Moses and Aaron about the lack of food and the lack of water and all that murmuring and everything else. So Moses goes to the Lord, and the Lord answers. And here's what 
um, Exodus 16, 6 says. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you shall know it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? And then the very next morning, I want you to see this. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, Draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked towards the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Notice that the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. That's something that Moses saw for himself. Now, again, it doesn't even stop there with Moses. Let me recount to you Mount Sinai, because I think this is important to understand the stature that Moses had with the Lord at the time. In Exodus 19, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you, and so trust you ever after. When Moses had told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and prepare for the third day, because on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Be careful not to go up on the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Any who touch the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch them, but they shall be stoned or shot with arrows, whether animal or human being, they shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they may go up on the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people. He consecrated the people and they washed their clothes and he said to the people, prepare for the third day. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, as well as a thick cloud on the mountain, and a blast of a trumpet so loud that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They, they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln while the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses would speak and God would answer him in thunder. When the Lord descended upon Sinai to the top of the mountain, the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Notice that, that Moses went up. And you know, it doesn't stop there with Moses. God gave him plans for the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. He set out the Day of the Atonement and, and the Law. In fact, when you read in the Old Testament, it says that never since, never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses. That's Exodus 34. So I want you to understand the stature he had with God. But then in Exodus 33, Moses asked God something that is, um, well, let's just get into it. Moses said, even after all of these miracles, after all of these supernatural wonders and the deliverance of Israel, Moses says this to God in 33:18. He says, show me your glory, I pray. Now, you have to ask the question, what is Moses really asking of the Lord? What is, what is he asking of Yahweh? Show me your glory. We see that with the account of manna, that Moses had already seen the glory cloud. And we saw with Sinai that Moses went up when God had descended on Sinai. So what is Moses asking God here? Show me your glory. Well, glory can mean the visible presence, and we saw that with the cloud. It can also mean praise, like when we say glory to the Lord. 
but here it means the visible revelation of God's true essential character. He's basically asking the Lord, show me who you are. Now listen to God's response. God responds and says, I will make my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy, but you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. So the Lord tells Moses, you can't see my glory. God is so otherworldly, so holy, so righteous, that he can't show Moses his true character, his essential core being. Now what God does is he does what he can. He says, and the Lord continued, See, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So the Lord does what he can with Moses, to show him his glory, but he says, you can't see my face. In, in effect, you can't see my glory. Now, let me, let me share with you the account of what happens. In Exodus 34, 4, it says, So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, Ten Commandments. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name, and the name is Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. You see, God did what he could, but he said, My glory, my essential character cannot be seen. No one can see that and live. Now that's Old Covenant. Now we're going to fast forward to the Gospel of John. But we're not going to John 11 yet. We're going to go to John 1. Now, I didn't ask you to turn to John 1 because I want you to hear these words like you're hearing them before the very first time. You've been programmed that once you hear John 1, in the beginning was the word, that you think, Jesus, Jesus. I don't want you to think that yet. I want you to erase that out of your mind for the moment because I want you to capture the nuance that John is writing. He doesn't identify Jesus for very many verses. So catch what these verses are saying, what John is getting over to us. All right? Let's read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Let's read on. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. Now listen to this. And we beheld his glory. Notice that. John writes in the very first chapter of his gospel, and we beheld his glory. John's thinking back to this account with Moses. Moses couldn't see the glory of God. He couldn't see his essential character. But John writes, we've seen it. We have beheld it. Now let's read on. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He identifies Jesus there. Before it was all the word. Now listen to these next lines, because John is still thinking about that account with Moses. He says, no man hath seen God at any time. But then he says this, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him, or he has shown him. John says, he has shown us the Father's glory. Question is, how have we seen it? How have we seen this glory that Moses couldn't see? How is it that we now have seen his essential character? Well, we see it in John 11. So let's turn over there. John 11 is the account of the raising of Lazarus. Now, let me say here that there's preaching all over the place about Lazarus, about how sickness is unto the glory of God, how healing's unto the glory of God, and all that kind of thing. We've set this up so you can read John 11 in its right context. And as we read through John 11, I want you to keep your eyes on Jesus. We've got a whole lot of characters. We've got Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Jews and Caiaphas and disciples. And they all have things to say, but I want you to keep your eyes on Jesus and keep your eyes on what he says and what he's responding to. It's the coolest thing. All right, let's start reading. John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now let's stop there a minute. 
you see that Mary and Martha send a message that their brother's ill. He's ill. He's not dead. He's ill. And Jesus has a very peculiar response here. Because when you look at the other Gospels, his response usually was pretty immediate. Remember Jairus? Jairus comes to him and says, hey, my daughter is sick. And Jesus says, I'll come and heal her. The Roman centurion, my servant is ill. And Jesus says, well, I've never seen such great faith. Woman with the issue of blood, healed instantaneously. And here, Jesus gets a message that one of his own friends is ill. And he says, this illness doesn't lead to death. Rather, it's for God's glory or for the sake of God's glory. Now, remember that we're looking at glory as the definition of glory being the, what? The visible manifestation of the character of God. The essence of who He is. All right? And you see that He says, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it, or glorified because of it. So, ju- so Jesus doesn't respond and say, well, I'll come heal him. He says, no, the sickness doesn't lead unto death. It's for the sake of God's glory. Almost like a mysterious response. But we're going to see Jesus' line of thinking and why he responds this way. So, let's read on. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Well, wait a minute. He stayed two days longer? I mean, what's that? What's that all about? What's he doing? Why is he hanging out where he is instead of responding immediately to this message? Because again, when you look at you look at the Gospel of Mark, I mean it's like it's like organized chaos wherever he goes. I mean, it is it is pedal to the metal in that gospel about his healings and miracles and all the rest, and here he waits two days. Why? Well, you watch him because he knows exactly what he's doing. He's got the bigger picture in mind. And we're going to see that as we work through this chapter. All right, let's move on. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble, because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble, because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now let's stop there and let's see what's going on. Like I said, now you watch Jesus. You watch what he's doing. After the two days, he says, let's go. Why? Because that's time enough to know that Lazarus is dead. There's not going to be any question in anybody's mind when he arrives now that Lazarus has died. Now, the disciples remind him He said, hey, the Jews were trying to stone you. And Jesus responds in a, uh, in in like a parabolic way. He says, are there not 12 hours of daylight and those who walk during the day do not stumble? 
What's he saying? What's he responding? Why does he say it that way? And it's because he must walk in the appointed time. Just as the days are limited and one must work during the day, it is time for Jesus to get to work and to accomplish what he needs to accomplish. That's what he's saying by that uh, you know, parabolic statement, if you want to call it that. Now, he says that Lazarus is dead. The interesting thing here that you might miss, you might skip over and miss it, is the fact that Jesus is operating on a word of knowledge. Because the message was that Lazarus is ill. Not that he was dead, but that he was ill. But Jesus knows by the revelation of the Spirit that Lazarus has died, and he's waited two days to make sure that he is dead or has been dead. And there's a reason for that, and we're coming to it later in the chapter. Lazarus must have died shortly after the messengers were sent. Now, Jesus makes this kind of weird statement too. He said, I'm glad for your sake I was not there so that you may believe. Now, let's turn that around a minute. If Jesus had been there, then Lazarus would have been healed. The healing would have been a regular healing, and actually it wouldn't accomplish what Jesus is looking to accomplish in this chapter. When you look at Jesus, he has the end game in mind. He says it's for the sake of the glory of God. In his mind, he's thinking about the revelation of God's true character. All right? Now, that will come to you as we move on. But you see, what's going to happen here, to give you a little bit of spoiler, is that this sign of, of raising Lazarus is going to seal Jesus' fate. And the disciples are aware of the gravity of the situation because Thomas says, all right, well, let's go. Let's go ahead and go die with him. They understand what this sign is going to bring about. In fact, Thomas's remark, you could almost call it a prophecy. So let's, let's read on. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had been already dead in the tomb four days. So there's no question that when Lazarus comes forth, that Lazarus had been dead. This isn't a regular healing. This is, this is a grand sign. Now, it says, Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met with him while Mary stayed at the home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Now, let's go back and let's look, take a look at this. Martha comes out and she says what's on her mind and what's on her heart. Lord, if you had been here, my brother Lazarus never would have died. And you know what she's saying is true, because Jesus would have healed him. But Jesus said, what, to his disciples, I'm glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe. May believe what? See, Jesus doesn't have so much on his mind the raising of Lazarus. He has on his mind his crucifixion. And we see that in the very next line. 
he says, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. Now, resurrection portends death. And he says, I am the resurrection. Well, in, in saying that, he says the resurrection and the life. Let me read to you Romans 14, 9, because this brings his statement a little bit more into perspective. Paul writes, For to this end Christ died and lived again, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Notice that, that he died and lived again. That's the sequence. Now we go back to John 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's speaking about his own death there. I am the resurrection and the life. He hasn't died yet. He has, he has healed people. He's even brought people back from the dead. But here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Why? Because he's looking at the end game. He's looking at his basic mission in responding to Martha. And notice that in verse 25, when he says, those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That is tied to his crucifixion and resurrection. That's not tied to him raising Lazarus from the dead, that's tied to his crucifixion and resurrection. So you see that when Jesus is speaking in John 11, he's got the bigger picture in mind with all these statements that he's making. Meanwhile, everybody else is responding to the situation at hand. You know? Now let's read on. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out, and they followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? You see, both Mary and Martha said, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then you see this, this last statement by the Jews said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And all three were correct. Why? Because Acts 10.38 tells us that, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Everybody who came to Jesus, he healed. And that would have been Lazarus. So they were all correct. But see, he didn't come to heal him right away. And Jesus had a reason for that. And now we're getting into it. Let's read on, because you're going to understand this in terms of the glory of God. Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Now notice what he says. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? All right. Now, 
Jesus is talking on another level when he says you would see the glory of God because the raising of Lazarus isn't what he's talking about. That he's going to do. But when he's talking to her about seeing the glory of God, you're going to see he's thinking about something totally different. He's thinking about his crucifixion. How do we know that? Well, let me read to you some later verses to give this one context. In the very next chapter, in John 12, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Notice that. He's talking about his death. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. See, the whole context is his crucifixion. Now let's go to the next chapter. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this. This is the Last Supper. And he is identifying Judas Iscariot as his betrayer. Now notice what happens here. He gives Judas a piece of bread, and he says, To whom I give this piece of bread is the one who's going to betray me. Now verse 27, After he, meaning Judas, received the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, do quickly what you are going to do. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the common purse, Jesus was telling, telling him, buy what we need for the festival. Or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the piece of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night. Now, here's the cool verse, verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. Now, why would he say that? Because it's in the crucifixion that we're going to see the true character of God Almighty. Jesus in his mind, thinks the glory of God is going to be manifested when he offers himself on the cross. And that's where he's speaking about the glory of God. Now remember, at the very beginning of John 11, Jesus said, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for the sake of the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. And we just read, we just read, just two chapters later, when Judas goes out, Jesus turns to everybody and says, Now the Son of Man has been glorified. Why? Because everything has been put into action for him to be crucified. Right? That's why he said that in John 13. Now, we're in John 11, but I want you to see how the raising of Lazarus, the last sign, the final sign, the seventh sign, the sign of fullness, brings about his crucifixion. And that's why he's saying that this illness does not lead unto death, but it's for the sake of the glory of God. So we read on. We see that Jesus, in reading on, he raises Lazarus. So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now, you've got the raising of Lazarus here, but that is not the 
that is not the climax of the chapter. A lot of preachers think it is because, you know, it's quite a mighty sign. It is a quite a mighty sign, but it's not the climax of the chapter because the chapter goes on. And listen to what happens after the raising of Lazarus because this is what Jesus was speaking about at the very beginning for the sake of the glory of God. Verse 45, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But here it comes. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, What are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. Notice that they're talking about the preservation of Israel the way that Israel was. And if you ask my wife, this is right where I could bring up Jonah, but I won't. We'll move on. But they, but they want to protect the temple. They want to protect the temple of the Old Covenant. And then verse 49 says, But then one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You don't understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. See, he's suggesting that Jesus be offered up to death. Now, notice what John writes in verse 51. He did not say this on his own. Now, that's a yikes. He did not say this on his own. But being high priest that year, he prophesied. That means he spoke by the Spirit of God that Jesus was about to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. And so from that day on, they plan to put him to death. There's the climax of chapter 11. Jesus performed the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead to bring on verse 53, so that from that day on, they plan to put him to death. Now let me move back to verse 51 a minute. Caiaphas prophesies that Jesus was about to die for the nation. Remember, he died king of the Jews. But not, on, not for the nation only, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. That means everybody. That means everybody. Remember when Jesus cleansed the temple, actually he brought judgment on the temple. And he said what? He said, my house shall not be a den of thieves, but, be, but shall be a house of prayer for what? For all nations. And here we see that the Jews in chapter 11, they want to preserve the temple for themselves, just for the Jews. But we see in Isaiah that the temple was supposed to be the temple for all nations, not just one nation. Let me read this to you. Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, that's the temple, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Not just one people, all peoples. So you see, you see the tension here. You see the tension here in John 11. That the, the Jews, 
They say, if, if this man keeps on doing what he's doing, then we're going to lose our holy place. The Romans will come and destroy both our holy place, which means the temple and our nation. And then one of them prophesies and says, Jesus is going to die not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the dispersed children of God. But the, the main point, the main line that we're exploring here in this session is the glory of God. Because at the very beginning, when Jesus says this illness is not unto death, he's signaling that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And that raising from the dead is, going, is for the sake of the glory of God. That's so the glory of God may be manifested. And how's it going to be manifested? It's going to be manifested in his crucifixion. So from that day on, they planned to put him to death. Now, as we talked about, the glory. The glory is the visible revelation of God's essential or core character. And John wrote, we have beheld his glory. And what's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus' crucifixion. The lifting up of Jesus on the cross was the abject humiliation of God to save his own people. Listen to Philippians 2. Who, this is verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself. Who is this? This is the Word. This is the Word who in the beginning was God, but then became flesh. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And the Word became flesh. And being found in human form, he humiliated himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humiliation of the cross was a visible public manifestation of God's essential character. It showed us, it showed the world, it showed every man, woman, and child who has ever lived what God's true character is. Anytime anybody asks you, what is your God like? You point to the cross and said, he's like that, because that is God on the cross. He humiliated himself for my sake. Amen. That is the strength of Christianity. That is the strength of our faith. There is no other God who even contemplated doing something like this. It's only the Christian God who has done this, who said, I will humiliate myself. I will go to the cross and be humiliated in order to save my people. And that shows us his goodness, his fullness, his holiness, and his righteousness. There is nothing that goes deeper. There is nothing that goes as far as that. So when you look upon that cross when you look upon Jesus being crucified, you're looking upon the glory of God. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. He said, For it is God who said, Let the light shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is where we see his glory. So we, like John can say, we have seen his glory. We have seen his true character. And that is God on the cross. The word become flesh who humiliated himself for us. Even dying the death on a cross. Becoming a curse for us. Experiencing Godlessness 
for us. For us. That is the God we serve. That is the God who saved us. And so when we read back in Hebrews 1, where it said God has spoken to us by a son, that is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. You look at God on that cross and you say, hallelujah, that is my God. He has done that for me. Hallelujah. So we have gone beyond what Moses had done. We had gone beyond that covenant because God said, I can't show you my glory. He said to Moses, you can't see it and live. But then in the new covenant with the crucifixion of Christ, we've seen it up close and personal. And that's what John was saying in chapter 1. He has demonstrated him. Hallelujah. It doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't get any more holy than that. And it doesn't get any more sacred than that. Hallelujah. So now we Now may the God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in everything good, that you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Unto his being raised from the dead, that his humiliation is also his exaltation. Amen. But now we have to end this session here. We're out of time, but let's go ahead and pray the benediction. We are 100% listener supported. You may lend your support at smite.tv.